CD3 There were twenty-three other novices in Brother's dormitory, on the principle that sleeping alone promoted sin. This always puzzled the novices themselves, since a moment's reflection would suggest that there were whole ranges of sins only available in company. But that was because a moment's reflection was the biggest sin of all. People allowed to be by themselves overmuch might indulge in solitary cogitation. It was well known that this stunted your growth. For one thing, it could lead to your feet being chopped off. So Brother had to retire to the garden, with his god screaming at him from the pocket of his robe, where it was being jostled by a ball of garden twine, a pair of shears and some loose seeds. Finally he was fished out. "'Look, I didn't have a chance to tell you,' said Brother. "'I've been chosen to go on a very important mission. I'm going to Ephebe, on the mission to the infidels. Deacon Vorbis picked me. He's my friend.' "'Who's he?' He's the chief exquisitor. He makes sure you're worshipped properly. Om picked up the hesitation in Brother's voice and remembered the grating and the sheer busyness below. He tortures people, he said coldly. Oh, no, the inquisitors do that. They work very long hours for not much money, too, Brother Nomrod says. No, the exquisitors just, um, well... Arrange matters. Every inquisitor wants to become an exquisitor one day, Brother Numrod says. That's why they put up with being on duty at all hours. They go for days without sleep sometimes. Torturing people, mused the god. No, a mind like that one in the garden wouldn't pick up a knife. Other people would do that. Vorbis would enjoy other methods. Letting out the badness and the heresy in people said Brother. But uh, people perhaps don't survive the process? Well, that doesn't matter, said Brother, earnestly. What happens to us in this life is not really real. There may be a little pain, but that doesn't matter, not if it ensures less time in the hells after death. But what if the exquisitors are wrong, said the tortoise. Oh, they can't be wrong, said Brother. They are guided by the end of... by... Well, by your hand, your front leg, I mean, your claw, he mumbled. The tortoise blinked its one eye. It remembered the heat of the sun, the helplessness, and a face watching it not with any cruelty, but worse, with interest. Someone watching something die just to see how long it took. He'd remember that face anywhere, and the mind behind it, that steel ball of a mind. But suppose something went wrong... It insisted. Oh, I'm not any good at theology, said Brother, but the testament of Ossery is very clear on the matter. They must have done something, otherwise you, in your wisdom, would not direct the quisition to them. Would I? said Om, still thinking of that face. It's their fault they get tortured. Did I really say that? We are judged in life as we are in death. Ossery the third, chapter six, verse fifty-six. My grandmother said that when people die, they come before you, they have to cross a terrible desert, and you weigh their heart in some scales, said Brother, and if it weighs less than a feather, they are spared the hells. Goodness me, said the tortoise, and it added, Has it occurred to you, lad, that I might not be able to do that and be down here walking around with a shell on? 
"'You could do anything you wanted to,' said Brother. Om looked up at Brother. "'He really believes,' he thought. "'He doesn't know how to lie.' The strength of Brother's belief burned in him like a flame. And then the truth hit Om like the ground hits tortoises after an attack of eagles. "'You've got to take me to this Ephib place,' he said urgently. "'I'll do whatever you want,' said Brother. "'Are you going to scourge it with hoof and flame?' "'Could be, could be,' said Om. "'But you've got to take me.' "'He was trying to keep his innermost thoughts calm "'in case Brother heard, "'Don't leave me behind. "'But you could get there much quicker if I left you,' said Brother. "'They are very wicked in Ephib. "'The sooner it is cleansed, the better. "'You could stop being a tortoise "'and fly there like a burning wind and scourge the city.' A burning wind, thought Om, and the tortoise thought of the silent wastes of the deep desert and the chittering and sighing of the gods who had faded away to mere jinns and voices on the air. Gods with no more believers, not even one. One was just enough. Gods who had been left behind. And the thing about Brother's flame of belief was this. In all the citadel, in all the day, it was the only one the god had found. Fryett was trying to pray. He hadn't done so for a long time. Oh, of course, there had been the eight compulsory prayers every day, but in the pit of the wretched night he knew them for what they were, a habit, a time for thought, perhaps, and method of measuring time. He wondered if he'd ever prayed, if he'd ever opened heart and mind to something out there, or up there. He must have done, mustn't he? Perhaps when he was young. He couldn't even remember that. Blood had washed away the memories. It was his fault. It had to be his fault. He'd been to Ephib before, and had rather liked the white marble city on its rock overlooking the blue circled sea. And he'd visited Djelibébi, those madmen in their little river valley who believed in gods with funny heads and put their dead in pyramids. He'd even been to far Ankh-Morpork, across the water, where they'd worship any god at all so long as he or she had money. Yes, Ankh-Morpork, where there were streets and streets of gods, squeezed together like a deck of cards, and none of them wanted to set fire to anyone else, or at least any more than was normally the case in Ankh-Morpork. They just wanted to be left in peace so that everyone went to heaven or hell in their own way. And he'd drunk too much tonight, from a secret cache of wine, whose discovery would deliver him into the machinery of the Inquisitors within ten minutes. Yes, you could say this for old Vorbis. Once upon a time the Quisition had been bribable, but not any more. The chief exquisitor had gone back to fundamentals. Now there was a democracy of sharp knives. Better than that, in fact. The search for heresy was pursued even more vigorously among the higher levels in the church. Vorbis had made it clear, the higher up the tree, the blunter the saw. Give me that old-time religion. He squeezed his eyes shut again, and all he could see was the horns of the temple, or fragmented suggestions of the carnage to come, or the face of Vorbis. He'd liked that white city. Even the slaves had been content. There were rules about slaves. There were things you couldn't do to slaves. Slaves had value. He'd learned about the turtle there. It had all made sense. He'd thought, it sounds right. It makes sense. But sense or not, that thought was sending him to hell. Vorbis knew about him. He must do. There were spies everywhere. Sasho had been useful, but how much had Vorbis got out of him? Had he said what he knew? 
Of course he'd say what he knew. Something went snap inside Fryett. He glanced at his sword hanging on the wall. And why not? After all, he was going to spend all eternity in a thousand hells. The knowledge was freedom of a sort. When the least they could do to you was everything, then the most they could do to you suddenly held no terror. If he was going to be boiled for a lamb, then he might as well be roasted for a sheep. He staggered to his feet and, after a couple of tries, got the sword belt off the wall. Vorbis's quarters weren't far away. If he could manage the steps, one stroke, that's all it would take. He could cut Vorbis in half without trying, and maybe... maybe nothing would happen afterwards. There were others who felt like him, somewhere. Or anyway, he could get down to the stables, be well away by dawn, get to Ephebe, maybe, across the desert. He reached the door and fumbled for the handle. It turned of its own accord. Fryat staggered back as the doors swung inwards. Vorbis was standing there, in the flickering light of the oil lamp, his face registered polite concern. "'Excuse the lateness of the hour, my lord,' he said, "'but I thought we should talk about tomorrow.' The sword clattered out of Fryat's hands. Vorbis leaned forward. "'Is there something wrong, brother?' he said. He smiled and stepped into the room. Two hooded inquisitors slipped in behind him. Brother, Vorbis said again, and shut the door. How is it in there? said Brother. I'm going to rattle around like a pea in a pot, grumbled the tortoise. I could put some more straw in, and look, I've got these. A pile of green stuff dropped on Om's head. From the kitchen, said Brother. Peelings and cabbage. I stole them, he added but then I thought it can't be stealing if I'm doing it for you. The fetid smell of the half-rotten leaves suggested strongly that Brother had committed his crime when the greens were halfway to the midden, but Om didn't say so, not now. Right, he mumbled. There must be others, he told himself, sure, out in the country. This place is too sophisticated. But there had been all those pilgrims in front of the temple. They weren't just country people, they were the devoutest ones. Whole villages clubbed together to send one person carrying the petitions of many. But there hadn't been the flame. There had been fear and dread and yearning and hope, and all those emotions had their flavour, but there hadn't been the flame. The eagle had dropped him near brother. He'd woken up. He could dimly remember all that time as a tortoise, and now he remembered being a god. How far away from brother would he still remember? A mile? Ten miles? How would it be, feeling the knowledge drain away, dwindling back to nothing but a lowly reptile? Maybe there would be a part of him that would always remember, helplessly. He shuddered. Currently, Om was in a wickerwork box slung from Brother's shoulder. It wouldn't have been comfortable at the best of times, but now it shook occasionally as Brother stamped his feet in the pre-dawn chill. After a while, some of the citadel grooms arrived with horses. Brother was the subject of a few odd looks. He smiled at everyone. It seemed the best way. He began to feel hungry, but didn't dare leave his post. He'd been told to be here. But after a while, sounds from around the corner made him sidle a few yards to see what was going on. The courtyard here was U-shaped, around a wing of the citadel buildings, and around the corner it looked as though another party was preparing to set out. Brother knew about camels. There had been a couple in his grandmother's village. There seemed to be hundreds of them here, though, complaining like badly oiled pumps and smelling like a thousand damp carpets. Men in Jeliba moved among them and occasionally hit them with sticks, which is the approved method of dealing with camels. 
Brother wandered over to the nearest creature. A man was strapping water bottles round its hump. "'Good morning, brother,' said brother. "'Bagger off,' said the man without looking round. "'The prophet Abbas tells us, chapter 25, verse 6, "'Woe unto he who defiles his mouth with curses, "'for his words will be as dust,' said brother. "'Does he? Well, he can bagger off too,' said the man conversationally. "'Brother hesitated. "'Technically, of course, the man had bought himself vacant possession of a thousand hells "'and a month or two of the attentions of the Quisition, "'but now brother could see that he was a member of the Divine Legion.' A sword was half hidden under the desert robes, and you had to make special allowances for legionaries, just as you did for inquisitors. Their often intimate contact with the ungodly affected their minds and put their souls in mortal peril. He decided to be magnanimous. "'And where are you going to with all these camels on this fine morning, brother?' The soldier tightened a strap. "'Probably to hell,' he said, grinning nastily. "'Just behind you.' Really? According to the word of the prophet Ishkaibal, a man needs no camel to ride to hell, yea, nor horse nor mule. A man may ride into hell on his tongue, said brother, letting just a tremor of disapproval enter his voice. Does some old prophet say anything about nosy bastards being given a thump alongside the ear? said the soldier. "'Woe unto him who raises his hand unto his brother, "'dealing with him as unto an infidel,' said brother. "'That's Ossery, Precepts 11, verse 16. "'Sod off and forget you ever saw us. "'Otherwise you're going to be in real trouble, my friend. "'Sergeant Actar, chapter 1, verse 1,' said the soldier. "'Brother's brow wrinkled. "'He couldn't remember that one. "'Walk away!' said the voice of the god in his head. You don't need trouble. I hope your journey is a pleasant one, said brother politely, whatever the destination. He backed away and headed towards the gate. A man who will have to spend some time in the hills of correction if I am any judge, he said. The god said nothing. The Ephebian travelling group was beginning to assemble now. Brother stood to attention and tried to keep out of everyone's way. He saw a dozen mounted soldiers, but unlike the camel riders, they were in the brightly polished fish mail and black and yellow cloaks that the legionaries usually only wore on special occasions. Brother thought they looked very impressive. Eventually, one of the stable servants came up to him. "'What are you doing here, novice?' he demanded. "'I am going to Ephebe,' said Brother. The man glared at him and then grinned. "'You? You're not even ordained.' "'You're going to Ephebe?' "'Yes.' "'What makes you think that?' "'Because I told him so,' said the voice of Vorbis behind the man. "'And here he is, most obedient to my wishes.' Brother had a good view of the man's face. The change in his expression was like watching a grease slick cross a pond. Then the stableman turned as though his feet were nailed to a turntable. "'My lord Vorbis!' He oiled. "'And now he will require a steed,' said Vorbis. The stableman's face was yellow with dread. "'My pleasure, uh, the very best stable. "'My friend brother is a humble man before Om,' said Vorbis. "'He will ask for no more than a mule, I have no doubt, brother.' "'I, 
"'I do not know how to ride, my lord,' said Brother. "'Any man can get on a mule,' said Vorbis, "'often many times in a short distance. "'And now it would appear we are all here?' "'He raised an eyebrow at the sergeant of the guard who saluted. "'We are awaiting General Froyet, lord,' he said. "'Ah, Sergeant Simony, isn't it?' "'Vorbis had a terrible memory for names. "'He knew every one.' The sergeant paled a little and then saluted crisply. "'Yes, sir!' "'We will proceed without General Fryatt,' said Vorbis. The B of the word but framed itself on the sergeant's lips and faded there. "'General Fryatt has other business,' said Vorbis. "'Most pressing and urgent business, which only he can attend to.' Fryatt opened his eyes in greyness. He could see the room around him, but only faintly as a series of edges in the air. The sword. He'd dropped the sword, but maybe he could find it again. He stepped forward, feeling a tenuous resistance around his ankles, and looked down. There was the sword, but his fingers passed through it. It was like being drunk, but he knew he wasn't drunk. He wasn't even sober. He was suddenly clear in his mind. He turned and looked at the thing that had briefly impeded his progress. Oh, he said. Good morning. Oh. There is a little confusion at first. It is only to be expected. To his horror, Fryatt saw the tall black figure stride away through the grey wall. Uh, wait! A skull draped in a black hood poked out of the wall. Yes? You're, "'You're death, aren't you?' "'Indeed.' Fryatt gathered what remained of his dignity. "'I, I know you,' he said. I, "'I have faced you many times.' Death gave him a long stare. "'No, you haven't.' "'I assure you, you have faced men. "'If you had faced me, I assure you, you would have known.' "'But what happens to me now?' Death shrugged. "'Don't you know?' he said, and disappeared. "'Wait!' Fryatt ran at the wall and found to his surprise that it offered no barrier. Now he was out in the empty corridor. Death had vanished. And then he realised that it wasn't the corridor he remembered, with its shadows and the grittiness of sand underfoot. The corridor didn't have a glow at the end that pulled at him like a magnet pulls at an iron filing. You couldn't put off the inevitable, because sooner or later you reached the place when the inevitable just went and waited. And this was it.' Fryatt stepped through the glow into a desert. The sky was dark and pocked with large stars, but the black sand that stretched away to the distance was nevertheless brightly lit. A desert. After death, a desert. The desert. No hells yet. Perhaps there was hope. He remembered a song from his childhood. Unusually, it wasn't about smiting. No one was trampled underfoot. It wasn't about Om, dreadful in his rage. It was a simple little homemade song, terrifying in its simple forlorn repetition. You have to walk a lonesome desert. Where is this place? he said hoarsely. This is no place, said Death. You have to walk it all alone. Uh, what is at the end of the desert? Judgment. There is no one to walk it for you. Fryatt stared at the endless, featureless expanse. 
"'I have to walk it by myself,' he whispered. "'But the song says it's a terrible desert.' "'Yes, and now, if you will excuse me—' "'Death vanished. "'Fryett took a deep breath, purely out of habit. "'Perhaps he could find a couple of rocks out there, "'a small rock to hold and a big rock to hide behind, "'while he waited for Vorbis. "'And that thought was habit, too. "'Revenge, here.' He smiled. Be sensible, man. You were a soldier. This is a desert. You crossed a few in your time. And you survive by learning about them. There's whole tribes that know how to live in the worst kinds of desert. Licking water off the shady side of dunes, that sort of thing. They think it's home. Put them in a vegetable garden and they think you are mad. The memory stole over him. A desert is what you think it is. And now you can think clearly. There were no lies here. All fancies fled away. That's what happened in all deserts. It was just you and what you believed. What have I always believed? That on the whole, and by and large, if a man lived properly, not according to what any priest said, but according to what seemed decent and honest inside, then it would, in the end, more or less, turn out all right. You couldn't get that on a banner, but the desert looked better already. Fryett set out. It was a small mule, and Brother had long legs. If he'd made the effort, he could have remained standing and let the mule trot out from underneath. The order of progression was not as some may have expected. Sergeant Simony and his soldiers rode ahead on either side of the track. They were trailed by the servants and clerks and lesser priests. Vorbis rode in the rear, where an exquisitor rode by right, like a shepherd watching over his flock. Brother rode with him. It was an honour he would have preferred to avoid. Brother was one of those people who could raise a sweat on a frosty day, and the dust was settling on him like a gritty skin. But Vorbis seemed to derive some amusement from his company. Occasionally he would ask him questions. "'How many miles have we travelled, Brother?' Four miles and seven estado, Lord.' "'But how do you know?' That was a question he couldn't answer. How did he know the sky was blue?' It was just something in his head. You couldn't think about how you thought. It was like opening a box with the crowbar that was inside. And how long has our journey taken? A little over seventy-nine minutes. Vorbis laughed. Brother wondered why. The puzzle wasn't why he remembered. It was why everyone else seemed to forget. Did your fathers have this remarkable faculty? There was a pause. "'Could they do it as well?' said Vorbis, patiently. "'I don't know. There was only my grandmother. "'She had a good memory for some things. "'Transgressions, certainly. "'And very good eyesight and hearing. "'What she could apparently see or hear through two walls "'had, he remembered, seemed phenomenal. "'Brother turned gingerly in the saddle. "'There was a cloud of dust about a mile behind them on the road.' "'Here come the rest of the soldiers,' he said conversationally. This seemed to shock Vorbis. Perhaps it was the first time in years that anyone had innocently addressed a remark to him. "'The rest of the soldiers?' he said. "'Sergeant Akhtar and his men on ninety-eight camels with many water-bottles,' said Brother. "'I saw them before we left.' "'You did not see them,' said Vorbis. "'They are not coming with us. You will forget about them.' "'Oh!' Uh, yes, Lord. The request to do magic again. 
After a few minutes, the distant cloud turned off the road and started up the long slope that led to the high desert. Brother watched them surreptitiously and raised his eyes to the dune mountains. There was a speck circling up there. He put his hand to his mouth. Vorbis heard the gasp. "'What ails you, brother?' he said. "'I remembered about the god,' said Brother, without thinking. "'We should always remember the god,' said Vorbis, "'and trust that he is with us on this journey.' "'He is,' said Brother, "'and the absolute conviction in his voice made Vorbis smile. "'He strained to hear the nagging internal voice, but there was nothing. "'For one horrible moment Brother wondered if the tortoise had fallen out of the box.' but there was a reassuring weight on the strap. "'And we must bear with us the certainty that he will be with us in Ephib, among the infidel,' said Vorbis. "'I'm sure he will,' said Brother. "'And prepare ourselves for the coming of the prophet,' said Vorbis. The cloud had reached the top of the dunes now and vanished in the silent wastes of the desert. Brother tried to put it out of his mind, which was like trying to empty a bucket underwater. No one survived in the high desert. It wasn't just the dunes and the heat. There were terrors in the burning heart, where even the mad tribes never went. An ocean without water, voices without mouths. Which wasn't to say that the immediate future didn't hold terrors enough. He'd seen the sea before, but the Omnians didn't encourage it. This may have been because deserts were so much harder to cross. They kept people in, though. But sometimes the desert barriers were a problem, and then you had to put up with the sea. Il Drim was nothing more than a few shacks around a stone jetty, at one of which was a trireme flying the holy oriflam. When the church travelled, the travellers were very senior people indeed, so when the church travelled it generally travelled in style. The party paused on a hill and looked at it. Soft and corrupt, said Vorbis. That's what we've become, brother. Yes, Lord Vorbis, and open to pernicious influence. The sea, brother, it washes unholy shores and gives rise to dangerous ideas. Men should not travel, brother. At the centre there is truth. As you travel, so error creeps in. Yes, Lord Vorbis. Vorbis sighed. In Ossory's day we sailed alone in boats made of hides and went where the winds of the god took us. That's how a holy man should travel. A tiny spark of defiance in Brother declared that it personally would risk a little corruption for the sake of travelling with two decks between its feet and the waves. I heard that Ossory once sailed to the island of Erebos on a millstone, he ventured by way of conversation. Nothing is impossible for the strong in faith said Vorbis. Try striking a match on jelly, mister. Brother stiffened. It was impossible that Vorbis could have failed to hear the voice. The voice of the turtle was heard in the land. Who's this bugger? Forward, said Vorbis. I can see that our friend Brother is agog to get on board. The horse trotted on. Where are we? Who's that? It is hot as hell in here, and believe me, I know what I'm talking about. I can't talk now, hissed Brother. This cabbage stinks like a swamp. Let there be lettuce. Let there be slices of melon. The horses edged along the jetty and were led one at a time up the gangplank. By this time the box was vibrating. 
Brother kept looking around guiltily, but no one else was taking any notice. Despite his size, Brother was easy not to notice. Practically everyone had better things to do with their time than notice someone like Brother. Even Vorbis had switched him off and was talking to the captain. He found a place up near the pointed end, where one of the sticking-up bits with the sails on gave him a bit of privacy. Then, with some dread, he opened the box. The tortoise spoke from deep within its shell. "'Any eagles about?' Brother scanned the sky. "'No,' the head shot out. "'You,' it began. "'I couldn't talk,' said Brother. "'People were with me all the time. "'Can't you... can't you read the words in my mind? "'Can't you read my thoughts?' "'Mortal thoughts aren't like that,' snapped Om. "'You think it's like watching words paint themselves across the sky? <laughs> "'It's like trying to make sense of a bundle of weeds. "'Intentions, yes. Emotions, yes, but not thoughts. "'Half the time you don't know what you're thinking, so why should I?' "'Because you're the god,' said Brother. Abyss, chapter 56, verse 17. All of mortal mind he knows, and there are no secrets. Was he the one with the bad teeth? Brother hung his head. Listen, said the tortoise, I am what I am. I can't help it if people think something else. But you knew about my thoughts in the garden, muttered Brother. The tortoise hesitated. That was different, it said. They weren't thoughts. That was guilt. I believe that the great God is Om, and in his justice, said Brother, and I shall go on believing whatever you say and whatever you are. Good to hear it, said the tortoise fervently. Hold that thought. Where are we? On a boat, said Brother, on the sea, wobbling. Going to a Phoebe on a boat? What's wrong with the desert? No one can cross the desert. No one could live in the heart of the desert. I did. It's only a couple of days sailing. Brother's stomach lurched, even though the boat had hardly cleared the jetty. And they say that the god, me, is sending us a fair wind. I am? Oh, yes. Trust me for a fair wind. Flat as a mill race the whole way. Don't you worry. I meant Mill Pond. I meant Mill Pond. Brother clung to the mast. After a while, a sailor came and sat down on a coil of rope and looked at him interestedly. You can let go, father, he said. It stands up all by itself. The sea, the waves, murmured Brother carefully, although there was nothing left to throw up. The sailor spat thoughtfully. Aye, he said. They gotta be that shape, see, souls to fit into the sky. But the boat's creaking. Aye, it does that. You mean this isn't a storm? The sailor sighed and walked away. After a while, Brother risks letting go. He'd never felt so ill in his life. It wasn't just the seasickness. He didn't know where he was, and Brother had always known where he was. Where he was and the existence of Om had been the only two certainties in his life. It was something he shared with tortoises. Watch any tortoise walking, and periodically it will stop while it files away the memories of the journey so far. Not for nothing elsewhere in the multiverse are the little travelling devices controlled by electric thinking engines called turtles. 
Brother knew where he was by remembering where he had been, by the unconscious counting of footsteps and the noting of landmarks. Somewhere inside his head was a thread of memory which, if you had wired it directly to what controlled his feet, would cause Brother to amble back through the little pathways of his life all the way to the place where he was born. Out of contact with the ground, on the mutable surface of the sea, the thread flapped loose. In his box, Om tossed and shook to Brother's motion as Brother staggered across the moving deck and reached the rail. To anyone except the novice, the boat was clipping through the waves on a good sailing day. Seabirds wheeled in its wake. Away to one side, port or starboard or one of those directions, a school of flying fish broke the surface in an attempt to escape the attentions of some dolphins. Brother stared at the grey shapes as they zigzagged under the keel in a world where they never had to count at all. "'Ah, brother,' said Vorbis, "'feeding the fishes, I see.' "'No, lord,' said brother, "'I'm being sick, lord,' he turned. There was Sergeant Simony, a muscular young man with the deadpan expression of the truly professional soldier. He was standing next to someone brother vaguely recognised as the number one salt, or whatever his title was, and there was the exquisitor, smiling. "'Aim! "'Aim!' screamed the voice of the tortoise. "'Our young friend is not a good sailor,' said Vorbis. "'Him! Him! I'd know him anywhere!' "'Lord, I wish I wasn't a sailor at all,' said Brother. He felt the box trembling as Om bounced around inside. "'Kill him! Find something sharp! Push him overboard!' "'Come with us to the prow, Brother!' said Vorbis. There are many interesting things to be seen, according to the captain. The captain gave the frozen smirk of those caught between a rock and a hard place. Vorbis could always supply both. Brother trailed behind the other three and risked a whisper. What's the matter? Him, the bald one. Push him over the side. Vorbis half-turned, caught Brother's embarrassed attention, and smiled. "'We will have our minds broadened, I am sure,' he said. He turned back to the captain and pointed to a large bird gliding down the face of the waves. "'The uh, pointless albatross,' said the captain promptly, "'flies from the hub to the... Uh, he faltered. But Vorbis was gazing with apparent affability at the view. "'He turned me over in the sun!' Look at his mind. From one pole of the world to the other every year, said the captain. He was sweating slightly. Really, said Vorbis. Why? No one knows. Excepting the god, of course, said Vorbis. The captain's face was a sickly yellow. Of course, certainly, he said. Brother, shouted the tortoise, are you listening to me? "'And over there?' said Vorbis. The sailor followed his extended arm. "'Oh, flying fish,' he said. "'But they don't really fly,' he added quickly. "'They just build up speed in the water and glide a little way.' "'One of the gods' marvels,' said Vorbis. "'Infinite variety, hmm?' "'Yes, indeed,' said the captain. Relief was crossing his face now like a friendly army. "'And the things down there?' said the exquisitor. "'Them porpoises,' said the captain. "'Sort of a fish. "'Do they always swim around ships like this?' "'Often, certainly, especially in the waters of Ephebe.' 
Vorbis leaned over the rail and said nothing. Simony was staring at the horizon, his face absolutely immobile. This left a gap in the conversation which the captain very stupidly sought to fill. "'They'll follow a ship for days,' he said. "'Remarkable!' Another pause, a tar-pit of silence ready to snare the mastodons of unthinking comment. Earlier exquisitors had shouted and ranted confessions out of people. Vorbis never did that. He just dug deep silences in front of them. "'They seem to like them,' said the captain. He glanced nervously at Brother, who was trying to shut the tortoise's voice out of his head. There was no help there. Vorbis came to his aid instead. "'This must be very convenient on long voyages,' he said. "'Er, uh, yes,' said the captain. "'From the provisions' point of view,' said Vorbis. "'My lord, I don't quite—' "'It must be like having a travelling larder,' said Vorbis. The captain smiled. "'Oh, no, lord, we don't eat them.' "'Surely not. They look quite wholesome to me.' "'Oh, but you know the old saying, lord.' Saying? Oh, they say that after they die, the souls of dead sailors become... The captain saw the abyss ahead, but the sentence had plunged on with a horrible momentum of its own. For a while there was no sound but the zip of the waves, the distant splash of the porpoises, and the heaven-shaking thundering of the captain's heart. Vorbis leaned back on the rail. But, of course, we are not prey to such superstitions, he said lazily. "'Well, of course,' said the captain, clutching at this straw. "'Idle sailor talk. "'If ever I hear it again, I shall have the man flogged.' "'Vorbis was looking past his ear. "'I say, yes, you there,' he said. "'One of the sailors nodded. "'Fetch me a harpoon,' said Vorbis. "'The man looked from him to the captain and then scuttled off obediently. "'But... Uh, but your lordship should not uh, <clears throat> attempt such a sport, said the captain. Uh, a, a harpoon is a dangerous weapon in untrained hands. I'm afraid you might do yourself an injury. But I will not be using it, said Vorbis. The captain hung his head and held out his hand for the harpoon. Vorbis patted him on the shoulder. And then, he said, you shall entertain us to lunch. "'Won't he, Sergeant?' Simon is saluted. "'Just as you say, sir.' "'Yes.' Brother lay on his back among sails and ropes, somewhere under the decking. It was hot, and the air smelled of all air anywhere that has ever come into contact with bilges. Brother hadn't eaten all day. Initially he'd been too ill to. Then he just hadn't. "'But being cruel to animals doesn't mean he's a... he's a... "'Bad person,' he ventured, the harmonics of his tone suggesting that even he didn't believe this. It had been quite a small porpoise. "'He turned me onto my back,' said Om. "'Yes, but humans are more important than animals,' said Brother. "'This is a point of view often expressed by humans,' said Om. "'Chapter 9, verse 16 of the book of—' Brother began. "'Who cares what any book says?' screamed the tortoise. Brother was shaken. "'But you never told any of the prophets that people should be kind to animals,' he said. "'I don't remember anything about that. Not when you were, well, bigger. You don't want people to be kind to animals because they're animals. You just want people to be kind to animals because one of them might be you.' "'That's not a bad idea,' 
"'Besides, he's been kind to me. "'He didn't have to be.' "'You think that? "'Is that what you think? "'Have you looked at the man's mind?' "'Of course I haven't. "'I don't know how to. "'You don't? "'No. "'Humans can't do things.' "'Brother paused. "'Vorbis seemed to do it. "'He only had to look at someone to know what wicked thoughts they harboured. "'And Grandmother had been the same. "'Humans can't do it, I'm sure,' he said. "'We can't read minds.' "'I don't mean reading them. "'I mean looking at them,' said Om. "'Just seeing the shape of them.' "'You can't read a mind. "'You might as well try and read a river. "'But seeing the shape is easy. "'Witches can do it, no trouble. "'The way of the witch shall be as a puff strewn with thorns,' said Brother. "'Ossery,' said Om. "'Yes, but of course you'd know,' said Brother. "'Never heard it before in my life,' said the tortoise bitterly. "'It was what you might call an educated guess.' "'Whatever you say,' said Brother, "'I still know that you can't truly be on. "'The God would not talk like that about his chosen ones.' "'I never chose anyone,' said Om. "'They chose themselves.' "'If you're really Om, stop being a tortoise.' "'I told you I can't. "'You think I haven't tried three years? "'Most of that time I thought I was a tortoise.' "'Then perhaps you were. "'Maybe you're just a tortoise who thinks he's a god.' "'Now, don't try philosophy again. "'Start thinking like that and you end up thinking "'maybe you're just a butterfly dreaming it's a whelk or something. "'No. "'One day all I had on my mind was the amount of walking "'necessary to get to the nearest plant with decent low-growing leaves. "'The next, I had all this memory filling up my head.' Three years before the shell. "'No, don't you tell me I'm a tortoise with big ideas.' Brother hesitated. He knew it was wicked to ask, but he wanted to know what the memory was. Anyway, could it be wicked? If the god was sitting there talking to you, could you say anything truly wicked, face to face? Somehow that didn't seem so bad as saying something wicked when he was up on a cloud or something.' "'As far as I can recall,' said Om, "'I'd intended to be a big white bull.' "'Trampling the infidel,' said Brother. "'Not my basic intention, but no doubt some trampling could have been arranged. "'Or a swan, I thought. Something impressive. Three years later I wake up and it turns out I've been a tortoise. "'I mean, you don't get much lower.' "'Careful, careful, you need his help. "'But don't tell him everything. "'Don't tell him what you suspect. "'When did you start thinking that... "'I mean, when did you remember all this?' said Brother, "'who found the phenomenon of forgetting a strange and fascinating one, "'as other men might find the idea of flying by flapping your arms. "'About two hundred feet above your vegetable garden,' said Om, which is not a point where it's fun to become sapient. I'm here to tell you. But why, said Brother, gods don't have to stay tortoises unless they want to. I don't know, lied Om. 
If he works it out himself, I'm done for, he thought. This is a chance in a million. If I get it wrong, it's back to a life where happiness is a leaf you can reach. Part of him screamed, I'm a god. I don't have to think like this. I don't have to put myself in the power of a human. But another part, the part that could remember exactly what being a tortoise for three years had been like, whispered, No, you have to. If you want to be up there again... He's stupid and gormless and he's not got a drop of ambition in his big flabby body and this is what you've got to work with. The god part said, Vorbis would have been better. Be rational. A mind like that could do anything. He turned me on my back. No, he turned a tortoise on its back. Yes, me. No, you're a god. Yes, but a persistently tortoise-shaped one. If he had known... You were a god. But Om remembered Vorbis's absorbed expression in a pair of grey eyes in front of a mind as impenetrable as a steel ball. He'd never seen a mind shaped like that on anything walking upright. There was someone who probably would turn a god on his back just to see what would happen. Someone who'd overturn the universe without thought of consequence for the sake of the knowledge of what happened when the universe was flat on its back. But what he had to work with was Brother with a mind as incisive as a meringue. And if Brother found out that... Or if Brother died... How are you feeling? said Om. Ill. Snuggle down under the sails a bit more, said Om. You don't want to catch a chill. There's got to be someone else, he thought. It can't be just him who... The rest of the thought was so terrible he tried to block it from his mind, but he couldn't. It can't be just him who believes in me. Really, in me? Not in a pair of golden horns, not in a great big building, not in the dread of hot iron and knives, not in paying your temple dues because everyone else does. Just in the fact that the great god Om really exists. And now he's got himself involved with the most unpleasant mind I've ever seen. Someone who kills people to see if they die. An eagle kind of a person, if ever there was one. Om was aware of mumbling. Brother was lying face down on the deck. What are you doing? said Om. Brother turned his head. Praying. Oh, that's good. What for? You don't know? Oh. If brother dies, the tortoise shuddered in its shell. If Brother died, then it could already hear in its mind's ear the suffing of the wind in the deep, hot places of the desert, where the small gods went. Where do gods come from? Where do they go? Some attempt to answer this was made by the religious philosopher Kumi of Smale in his book Ego Video Liber Deorum, which translates into the vernacular roughly as God's, a spotter's guide. People said there had to be a supreme being, because otherwise how could the universe exist, eh? And of course there clearly had to be, said Kumi, a supreme being. But since the universe was a bit of a mess, it was obvious that the supreme being hadn't in fact made it. If he had made it, he would, being supreme, have made a much better job of it, with far better thought given, taking an example at random, to things like the design of the common nostril. Or to put it another way, the existence of a badly put together watch, proved the existence of a blind watchmaker. You had only to look around to see that there was room for improvement practically everywhere. 
This suggested that the universe had probably been put together in a bit of a rush by an underling while the supreme being wasn't looking, in the same way that Boy Scouts Association minutes are done on office photocopiers all over the country. So, reasoned Kumi, it was not a good idea to address any prayers to a supreme being. It would only attract his attention and might cause trouble. And yet, there seemed to be a lot of lesser gods around the place. Kumi's theory was that gods come into being and grow and flourish because they are believed in. Belief itself is the food of the gods. Initially, when mankind lived in small primitive tribes, there were probably millions of gods. Now there tended to be only a very few important ones. Local gods of thunder and love, for example, tended to run together like pools of mercury as the small primitive tribes joined up and became huge, powerful primitive tribes with more sophisticated weapons. But any god could join. Any god could start small. Any god could grow in stature as its believers increased and dwindle as they decreased. It was like a great big game of ladders and snakes. Gods liked games, provided they were winning. Kumi's theory was largely based on the good old Gnostic heresy, which tends to turn up all over the multiverse when men get up off their knees and start thinking for two minutes together, although the shock of the sudden altitude tends to mean the thinking is a little whacked. But it upsets priests who tend to vent their displeasure in traditional ways. When the Omnian Church found out about Kumi, they displayed him in every town within the Church's empire to demonstrate the essential flaws in his argument. There were a lot of towns, so they had to cut him up quite small. Ragged clouds ripped across the skies. The sails creaked in the rising wind, and Om could hear the shouts of the sailors as they tried to outrun the storm. It was going to be a big storm, even by the mariner's standards. White water crowned the waves. Brother snored in his nest. Om listened to the sailors. They were not men who dealt in sophistries. Someone had killed a porpoise, and everyone knew what that meant. It meant that there was going to be a storm. It meant that the ship was going to be sunk. It was simple cause and effect. It was worse than women aboard. It was worse than albatrosses. Om wondered if tortoises could swim. Turtles could, he was pretty sure, but those buggers had the shell for it. It would be too much to ask, even if a god had anyone to ask, that a body designed for trundling around a dry wilderness had any hydrodynamic properties other than those necessary to sink to the bottom. Oh, well, nothing else for it. He was still a god. He had rights. He slid down a coil of rope and crawled carefully to the edge of the swaying deck, wedging his shell against a stanchion so that he could see down into the roiling water. Then he spoke in a voice audible to nothing that was mortal. Nothing happened for a while. Then one wave rose higher than the rest and changed shape as it rose. Water poured upward, filling an invisible mould. It was humanoid, but obviously only because it wanted to be. It could as easily have been a waterspout or an undertow. The sea is always powerful. So many people believe in it, but it seldom answers prayers. The water shape rose level with the deck and kept pace with Om. It developed a face and opened a mouth. Well, it said. Greetings, O oh Queen of... Om began. The watery eyes focused. But you are just a small god, and you dare to summon me? The wind howled in the ringing. I have believers, said Om, so I have the right. There was the briefest of pauses. Then the Sea Queen said, One believer. 
"'One or many does not matter here,' said Om. "'I have rights.' "'And what rights do you demand, little tortoise?' said the Queen of the Sea. "'Save the ship,' said Om. The Queen was silent. "'You have to grant the request,' said Om. "'It's the rules.' "'But I can name my price,' said the Sea Queen. "'That's the rules, too. "'And it will be high. "'It will be paid.' The column of water began to collapse back into the waves. I will consider this. Om stared down into the white sea. The ship rolled, sliding him back down the deck, and then rolled back. A flailing foreclaw hooked itself around the stanchion as Om's shell spun around, and for a moment both hind legs paddled helplessly over the waters. And then Om was shaken free. Something white swept down towards him, as he seesawed over the edge and he bit it. Brother yelled and pulled his hand up, with Om trailing on the end of it. You didn't have to bite! The ship pitched into a wave and flung him onto the deck. Om let go and rolled away. When Brother got to his feet, or at least to his hands and knees, he saw the crewmen standing around him. Two of them grabbed him by the elbows as a wave crashed over the ship. What are you doing? They were trying to avoid looking at his face. They dragged him towards the rail. Somewhere in the scuppers, Om screamed at the Sea Queen. It's the rules! The rules! Four sailors had got hold of Brother now. Om could hear above the roaring of the storm the silence of the desert. Wait! said Brother. It's nothing personal, said one of the sailors. We don't want to do this. I don't want you to do it either, said Brother. Is that any help? The sea wants a life, said the oldest sailor. Yours is nearest. Okay, get his... Uh, can I make peace with my god? What? If you're going to kill me, can I pray to my god first? It's not us that's killing you, said the sailor. It's the sea. The hand that does the deed is guilty of the crime, said Brother. Ossery, chapter 56, verse 93. The sailors looked at one another. At a time like this, it was probably not wise to antagonise any god. The ship skidded down the side of a wave. You've got ten seconds, said the oldest sailor. That's ten seconds more than many men get. Brother lay down on the deck, helped considerably by another wave that slammed into the timbers. Om was dimly aware of the prayer, to his surprise. He couldn't make out the words, but the prayer itself was an itch at the back of his mind. Don't ask me, he said, trying to get upright. I'm out of options. The ship smacked down onto a calm sea. The storm still raged, but only around a widening circle with the ship in the middle. The lightning, stabbing at the sea, surrounded them like the bars of a cage. The circle lengthened ahead of them. Now the ship sped down a narrow channel of calm between grey walls of storm a mile high. Electric fire raged overhead and then was gone. Behind them, a mountain of greyness squatted on the sea. They could hear the thunder dying away. Brother got uncertainly to his feet, swaying wildly to compensate for a motion that was no longer there. Now I... he began... He was alone. The sailors had fled. Om, said Brother. Over here. Brother fished his god out of the seaweed. You said you couldn't do anything, he said accusingly. That wasn't me, Om paused. There will be a price, he thought. It won't be cheap. It can't be cheap. The Sea Queen is a god. I've crushed a few towns in my time. Holy fire, that kind of thing. If the price isn't high, how can people respect you? I... 
made arrangements, he said. Tidal waves, a ship sunk, a couple of towns disappearing under the sea. It'll be something like that. If people don't respect, then they won't fear, and if they don't fear, how can you get them to believe? Seems unfair, really. One man killed a porpoise. Of course, it doesn't matter to the Queen who gets thrown overboard, just as it didn't matter to him which porpoise he killed. And that's unfair, because it was Vorbis who did it. He makes people do things they shouldn't do. What am I thinking about? Before I was a tortoise, I didn't even know what unfair meant. The hatches opened. People came on deck and hung on the rail. Being on deck in stormy weather always has the possibility of being washed overboard, but that takes on a rosy glow after hours below decks with frightened horses and seasick passengers. There were no more storms. The ship ploughed on in favourable winds under a clear sky in a sea as empty of life as the hot desert. The days passed uneventfully. Vorbis stayed below decks for most of the time. The crew treated Brother with cautious respect. News like Brother spreads quickly. The coast here was dunes with the occasional barren salt marsh. A heat haze hung over the land. It was the kind of coast where shipwrecked landfall is more to be dreaded than drowning. There were no seabirds. Even the birds that had been trailing the ship for scraps had vanished. No eagles, said Om. There was that to be said about it. Towards the evening of the fourth day, the unedifying panorama was punctuated by a glitter of light high on the dune sea. It flashed with a sort of rhythm. The captain, whose face now looked as if sleep had not been a regular nighttime companion, called Brother over. Is your... the deacon told me to watch out for this, he said. You go and fetch him now. Vorbis had a cabin somewhere near the bilges, where the air was as thick as thin soup. Brother knocked. Enter. Words are the litmus paper of the mind. If you find yourself in the power of someone who will use the word commence in cold blood, go somewhere else very quickly. But if they say enter, don't stop to pack. There were no portholes down here. Vorbis was sitting in the dark. Yes, brother. The captain sent me to fetch you, Lord. Something's shining in the desert. Good. Now, brother, attend. The captain has a mirror. You will ask to borrow it? Er, uh, what is a mirror, Lord? An unholy and forbidden device, said Vorbis, which regretfully can be pressed into godly service. <laughs> he will deny it, of course, but a man with such a neat beard and tiny moustache is vain, and a vain man must have his mirror, so take it. And stand in the sun and move the mirror so that it shines the sun towards the desert. Do you understand? No, Lord. Your ignorance is your protection, my son. And then come back and tell me what you see. Om dozed in the sun. Brother had found him a little space near the pointy end where he could get sun with little danger of being seen by the crew, and the crew were jittery enough at the moment not to go looking for trouble in any case. A tortoise dreams for millions of years. It was the dream time, the unformed time. The small gods chittered and whirred in the wilderness places and the cold places and the deep places. They swarmed in the darkness without memory, but driven by hope and lust for one thing. The one thing a god craves. Belief. There are no medium-sized trees in the deep forest. There are only the towering ones whose canopy spreads across the sky. Below, in the gloom, there's light for nothing but mosses and ferns. 
but when a giant falls, leaving a little space, then there's a race between the trees on either side who want to spread out, and the seedlings below who race to grow up. Sometimes you can make your own space. Forests were a very long way from the wilderness. The nameless voice that was going to be Om drifted on the wind on the edge of the desert, trying to be heard among countless others, trying to avoid being pushed into the centre. It may have whirled for millions of years. It had nothing with which to measure time. All it had was hope, and a certain sense of the presence of things, and a voice. And there was a day, in a sense, it was the first day. Om had been aware of the shepherd for some time, for a while. The flock had been wandering closer and closer. The rains had been sparse, forage was scarce, hungry mouths propelled hungry legs further into the rocks, searching out the hitherto scorned clumps of sun-seared grass. They were sheep, possibly the most stupid animal in the universe, with the possible exception of the duck, but even their uncomplicated minds couldn't hear the voice because sheep don't listen. There was a lamb, though. It had strayed a little way. Om saw to it that it strayed a little further, around a rock, down the slope, into the crevice. Its bleating drew the mother. The crevice was well hidden, and the ewe was, after all, content now that she had her lamb. She saw no reason to bleat, even when the shepherd wandered about the rocks calling, cursing, and eventually pleading. The shepherd had a hundred sheep, and it might have been surprising that he was prepared to spend days searching for one sheep. In fact, it was because he was the kind of man prepared to spend days looking for a lost sheep that he had a hundred sheep. The voice that was going to be Om waited. It was on the evening of the second day that he scared up a partridge that had been nesting near the crevice just as the shepherd was wandering by. It wasn't much of a miracle, but it was good enough for the shepherd. He made a cairn of stones at the spot and next day brought his whole flock into the area and in the heat of the afternoon he lay down to sleep and Om spoke to him, inside his head. Three weeks later, the shepherd was stoned to death by the priests of Ur-Gilash, who was at that time the chief god in the area. But they were too late. Om already had a hundred believers, and the number was growing. Only a mile away from the shepherd and his flock was a goat herd and his herd. The merest accident of microgeography had meant that the first man to hear the voice of Om, and who gave Om his view of humans, was a shepherd and not a goat herd. They have quite different ways of looking at the world, and the whole of history might have been different. For sheep are stupid and have to be driven, but goats are intelligent and need to be led. Ur-Gilash, thought Om. Ah, those were the days. When Ossery and his followers had broken into the temple and smashed the altar and had thrown the priestesses out of the window to be torn apart by wild dogs, which was the correct way of doing things, and there had been a mighty wailing and gnashing of feet and the followers of Om had lit their campfires in the crumbled halls of Gilash, just as the prophet had said, and that counted, even though he'd said it only five minutes earlier. When they were only looking for the firewood, because everyone agreed a prophecy is a prophecy, and no one said you had to wait a long time for it to come true. Great days, great days. Every day fresh converts, the rise of Om had been unstoppable. He jerked awake. Old Ur-Gilash. Hmm... Weather god, wasn't he? Yes, no. Maybe one of your basic giant spider gods, something like that. Whatever happened to him? What happened to me? How does it happen? You hang around the astral planes, going with the flow, enjoy the rhythms of the universe. 
You think that all the, you know, humans are getting on with the believing back down there. You decide to go and stir them up a bit, and then the tortoise. It's like going to the bank and finding the money's been leaking out through a hole. The first, you know, is when you stroll down looking for a handy mind, and suddenly you're a tortoise and there's no power left to get out. Three years of looking up at practically everything. Old Ur Gilash. Perhaps he was hanging on as a lizard somewhere, with some old hermit as his only believer. More likely he had been blown out into the desert. A small god was lucky to get one chance. There was something wrong. Om couldn't quite put his finger on it, and not only because he didn't have a finger. Gods rose and fell like bits of onion in a boiling soup. But this time was different. There was something wrong this time. He'd forced out Urgilash, fair enough, law of the jungle. But no one was challenging him. Where was Brother? Brother! End of CD 3